Hi, welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. Diverse democracies are new, wonderful, but potentially fragile. That's the claim, the warning, and the promise that's held out by my guest today, Yasha Monk. Uh, I was excited by this conversation, as you'll be able to tell almost uh, from the beginning. Uh, Yasha's a, a fascinating public intellectual. He wears many hats. He's a professor at Johns Hopkins. He's the founder of Persuasion, which is a publication and a, and a community devoted to the maintenance of a liberal society. He has his own excellent podcast, The Good Fight, which you should definitely check out. He's also, by background and training, a political scientist and a historian with at least four books to his name. Uh, most recently, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, which is the main topic of our conversation today. So we talk about the dangers of tribalism and of majority domination in diverse democracies. And I think a very important point Yasha makes is that diversity is particularly threatening to democracies precisely because of this competition for power. We talk about the difference between a liberal society and a democratic society, though that word liberal democracy is sometimes used a bit too, too loosely, uh, and which of those two, liberalism or democracy, is, is more important. The intrinsic groupiness of human beings, that's something that Yash has really moved on in his own position, I, and I have myself. And, and if we're intrinsically groupy, then what that means is that liberals need to be in the business of drawing lines between in-groups, out-groups, uh, etc., whether we like it or not. And what the communitarian critics of liberalism get wrong, the wonderful messiness of, of liberal societies. Uh, Yasha talks a bit about Federalist 10, and we talk a lot about the risks of an overemphasis on a racial or ethnic identity uh, in the context of liberalism and democracy and, and the business of race craft. And that that overemphasis on race is something that Yasha sees as an increasingly dominant trend on both the political right and the political left and how that's, in his view, one of the most worrying trends in terms of holding a diverse uh, society and in particular diverse democracy together. So it was uh, as so often, but perhaps especially in the case of Yasha, a very wide ranging conversation, uh, one which I hugely enjoyed. I hope you enjoy it too. So Yasha, thank you for, very much for coming on Dialogues. Oh, I'm looking forward to this, Richard. Me too. I actually, I just said to my family, I'm super excited about this, this podcast with, with Yasha. Uh, and my son said, well, Yasha's cool. So there you go, Yasha. He's 20 <laughs> and he thinks he thinks you're cool. So, and I said, well, he I is think cool. there's the only 20 year old in the world who thinks that I'm cool, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, he was raised by me. So that may be something to do with <laughs> it. Right? When your father is a mill biographer and a Brookings scholar, the chances that Yasha Monk is cool get disproportionately higher. But, um, uh, but I think... You know, big fan of his, and, and he may now be old enough that he thinks rightly that you are cool too. Whereas perhaps three or four years ago, he would have been less likely to say so. But uh, maybe I think it's a it's a bigger step to thinking your own parent is cool. But I think thinking that the sorts of people who are like your parents are cool is a that's is a, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a step <laughs> in the right direction at least. So, um, so I'm I genuinely am very excited by this, and I heard you say this on on your excellent podcast, The Good Fight. At one point, this is the kind of interview that you hope to have when you started the podcast, and that's exactly the case for me uh, doing this. Uh, with you today so thank you uh, for coming on the problem uh, with this podcast is there's so much to talk about um, uh, and we're obviously mostly going to talk about your your most recent book the great experiment um, and I'd like to so what I'd like to do is get the thesis down 
at the top pretty you've talked about this a lot and people can go to other places as well and read read the book above all read the book it's incredibly succinct and and readable but then really drill down in some of the implications i think like what does this mean for how we think about liberalism and so on too so but let's start just like let's just let's get the let's get the ground your thesis is that diverse democracies are a new and largely untested and difficult way to run societies. Uh, so talk a bit about the sort of new and untested thing, because I think a lot of people will be like, this is normal, right? And a big part of your argument is, no, it's not. This is incredibly unusual. So talk a bit about that, maybe from a historic perspective. Is Persuade me that this is really a new and untested thing. Yeah, so look, I mean, most societies in the history of the world are not democracies. Um, many societies in the history of the world have some amount of real ethnic or religious uh, diversity, but uh, in many or most of them, uh, one group enjoys tremendous privileges and advantages over others. Um, and so when you're restricting yourself to democracies, um, uh, they normally fall into one of two camps, either like Germany, West Germany, where I grew up, uh, they are very homogeneous at the moment of their founding and sort of pretend to be inclusive, are inclusive in certain kinds of ways. Um, but that's easy because, you know, 95% of the population shares the same ethnicity and the same religion. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, it's easy to talk about uh, inclusion and tolerance when there's not many people around who you have to include and tolerate. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, they are democracies like the American Republic, which, of course, has been deeply uh, religiously and especially ethnically diverse since its founding. Uh, the United States in the late 18th century uh, was uh, a society with members of many different ethnic groups in particular. But equally obviously, um, it did not uh, treat all of those groups as full members. In fact, it uh, excluded most of them in one way or another. And uh, in the case of African Americans in uh, the most uh, extreme and uh, terrible way with chattel slavery. And so what is, I think, quite new about many democracies in the world today is this attempt to build deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that actually treat their members as true equals. Um, right. And so the term of a great experiment, uh, the name of a book, comes from a recognition that like the framers in the end of the 18th century, we're doing something new. They were trying to figure out how do you have a large territorial nation uh, that self-governs when most attempts at doing that have gone wrong. And I think today we're trying to figure out how do you have a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracy that treats yes. all of its members as equals without falling apart. And, and that too is new. And I think the addition of the the equal part there is obviously hugely important because you could have a, uh, we'll get to this maybe, or maybe get to a kind of a diverse democracy that's quite illiberal where it's diverse but but the minority is one of the ways it goes wrong you talk about domination as one of the three ways they go wrong uh and but you have a minority status and so there are plenty of empires for example that have been christian empires where jews have been treated badly or islamic empires where christians have been treated badly or pagan empires where both have been treated bad whatever um but they've had very, very much second or third class status. So they were diverse. Now, how, how badly mm-hmm. they were treated varied over time, but they didn't meet this other criteria. So there's an implicit criteria here too, which isn't just diverse and democratic, but diverse, democratic and equal Yes, in your, exactly. anal- in your um, analysis. But for the democratic point is also interesting, right? Or also important, which is to say that 
when you look at the history of the world, some of the societies, a lot of the most celebrated democracies, prided themselves in their ethnic purity, right? So in ancient Athens for a long time, uh, you had to have uh, a father who descended, a paternal line, but descended from the founding of the uh, Athenian uh, Republic in order to, or the Athenian democracy in order to count as a full citizen. Uh, and then at some point, a famous artist stood up and said, this is obviously wrong and unjust um, because it allows all these people, foreign influences, to have a voice in our democracy. Actually, you should have to have a mother and a father that descend uh, from the founders of uh, of a democracy in order to be a full citizen. So actually, Athenian citizenship, I mean, it went back and forth a little bit, and it's a complicated story, became more ethnically exclusionary uh, as it went on. And it's true of many of the celebrated democracies before modern times, but they prided themselves in the purity in that kind of way, at least in the purity of those who were true members of the polity, who were citizens. Um, and conversely, some of... Uh, the most celebrated diverse societies in the history of the world were the kind of empires you talked about where absolutely there were still privileges for one group um, in the Ottoman Empire in the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, but uh, where in Baghdad in the 9th century in the Vienna of the 19th century people also did manage to sustain some amount of real cooperation across groups for a long time um, but it's not a coincidence that there weren't democracies because actually some things are made easier when you have a monarch and you say look uh, I have to trust the monarch, you have to trust the monarch, the relative size of our group doesn't matter. In a democracy, you're always searching for a majority. And so if it's not well managed, and if you don't have liberal philosophical principles to help guide uh, the basic rights and duties of individuals, democratic institutions can actually exacerbate tension because it's a natural thing to think in a democracy. I'm in a majority, but hang on a second, that group over there is growing and perhaps they'll have overpower tomorrow and that seems scary to me. So um, so democratic, so, 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 so the diverse piece is difficult, the equal piece is difficult. The democracy piece can be difficult too. Mm, yes, because it sort of brings the other two into, into that tension that you've just identified. I'm just thinking like just historically when when the church was split by the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century, the sort of anti-Chalcedonian churches ended up in the Islamic Empire and they were thrilled because they had much more freedom in the Islamic Empire than they would have done under the, the, oh, Byzantine, yeah. the Byzantine Empire. Um, and, and as you kind of point out, some of these autocracies are, are more or less liberal. And as you've done a lot of work around this idea of illiberal uh, of illiberal democracy. So one of the things that's interesting to me about this, so if we define our terms correctly, I think you just did that very well, which is like, don't forget the liberal in liberal democracy, that the bit it's protecting individual rights, equal rights, human rights, freedom of association, freedom of religion, etc., as the liberal bit and how democracy can destroy that, right? And then, uh, and it can do that legally, but it can also do that culturally and we'll, we'll, we get, we'll maybe get to that. But I think it's Isaiah Berlin said something like, you can be freer under the King of Spain than under the British Parliament. And his point was exactly the one you just made, I think, which is that you, know, you, can be, you, can be, you can be free at the kind of liberal individual level under an autocracy. And in some ways, your freedoms might be more guaranteed because they're not threatened by this majoritarianism. But you can be unfree in, in, a, in a democracy. So let's, let's, start, let's ask the question deeply unfairly, Asher. If you had the choice between being in a liberal autocracy so it's an autocracy, but it has very, very liberal laws and an illiberal democracy. So a democracy, but let's say it had all kinds of rules about, I don't know, it could, they could be anti-Semitic rules or, or, or whatever, or, you know, rules against things. Which would you rather live in? Would you rather live in a liberal autocracy or an illiberal democracy? 
Well, first of all, I, you know, what you're talking about uh, reminded me of one of my favorite uh, uh, quotes from Thomas Hobbes, and I was trying to very quickly look up the mm. exact wording uh, as 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 you were making your point, but I, di- I, di- I didn't manage to find it that quickly, and I'm not. Well, paraphrase I, I, it, and we'll find it later. I don't have my my copy of Leviathan right here, but um, <laughs> I'm sure you uh, do. But he says something along the lines of, um, uh, you know, there's written above the gates of the city of Lucca the words libertas, um, but actually, uh, a, a citizen of of Lucca is just as much subject to the laws of his fellow citizens as a subject of the uh, Ottoman Empire uh, or, or a subject of the, mm. the, the, um, yeah, of the Ottoman Empire who is but a tenant of his own head. Um, and right. so he was sort of yes. making this point that there's a distinction between collective self-government and how free you are as an individual within that society. And the other classic text, which I think expresses that point very beautifully, is Benjamin Constant in uh, The Liberty of the Ancients compared to that of the Moderns. Um, I think the most important, most underread text, uh, perhaps in the liberal political uh, tradition. Uh, And he emphasizes that uh, in ancient Athens, um, uh, people had this sense of liberty, which was uh, collective decision-making about the fate, which went far beyond what we enjoy today. Um, Mm. But... uh, when a musician wanted to add a lyre, uh, a string to his lyre in Sparta, um, he had to ask the ephors for permission um, because it was thought that that kind of change in cultural customs could corrode the norms of a community. And this was the kind of thing that we would have to decide about collectively. Um, so, so, so I agree that to be truly free, we need those two things at the same time. We need to... Uh, be collectively self-governing. You can't be truly free if a dictator or a monarch tells you uh, uh, what the laws are going to be that you're you're bound by. But you also need to have some protection from the interests of the state and, by the way, some protection from your own community. You have to have some guarantees that you can strike out and make your own decisions about uh, what to say, how to worship, who to love, what kind of lifestyle to lead, but protect you against Outsiders against the state or against a majority group that may become tyrannical, but also among against your own um, parents, against your own aunties and uncles, against your own priest or, or imam or rabbi. Um, so, so I, I yes. think I would try to reject your question because um, yes. <laughs> I knew that's where you're going. <laughs> yeah, so you can have uh, a system that. Uh, you know, is relatively good at guaranteeing the rights of individuals, um, but in which a dictator is in charge. And and the Mm -hmm. problem is not how terrible that system is. The trouble can be perfectly fine for five or ten years. The problem is that um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the longer a system like that exists, the more likely it is to become deeply uh, illiberal as well. So if you don't have a way of removing the people who govern you from office and you don't have a way of keeping them accountable, they will eventually become more and more tyrannical. Now, on the other you, hand, yes. if you yes, have... I'm sorry, a, it's inter- but even if they didn't, they might. Even if they don't, they might. And so you, there's always well, the there's arbitrary always the risk, nature there's always of the it. fear. The yeah. risk, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's in some sense, it's depending on the whim. The, the the liberal despot could wake up one day and change their mind, right? So you're at their mercy. Yeah, and so then so that means that actually you're not. I mean, this is the point that the Republican political tradition has yes. has has often this is made. Hmm. Uh, exactly uh, that that you know you if somebody holds power over you, they may be treating you fairly, but you always have to be aware of uh, the way in which they might subjugate you, the way in which they might punish you for offending them or doing something else that, that they don't like. And so, um, uh, so yeah, so, 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 but you know, beyond that, yeah. I think there is also this important point that, you know, would I, would I like to live under a benevolent dictator? Yeah, I think benevolent dictators are probably often better than the worst kinds of democratic leaders. It's just, the likelihood that you get a benevolent dictator and the likelihood that the dictator stays benevolent is very, very low. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you could get, I mean, you know, Aristotle says if you have a supremely virtuous person who governs in a supremely virtuous way, they should just get all the power. Sure. If you can assure, assure me that this person remains supremely virtuous, I might be tempted by that. But there's just no reason, given everything we know about human history and human nature, uh, to think that that's going to be the case. Perhaps once we have sort of you know, I virtue artificial intelligence robot. Yes, uh, AI. You know, perhaps uh, that how, changes things. Yes. That I, I, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. AI despot. But it's it, there, I mean, there the reason go. it's it's sort of silly thought experiment, like a lot of these things. But to some extent, what it gets at the, the, is that it gets at the fact that you're you're liberal. Uh, and I'm sort of just talking about myself as much as any, but with the sort of Democrats, because we're liberals as, as much as the other way around, I think, uh, because we, because there's a sense that democratic structures, especially when they're well designed, um, and we can get to some of that maybe are sort of, the, they're the best guarantor of the kind of liberal societies that you think are the ones that are most likely to achieve this goal of getting peaceful diversity and so on. So it's not quite to say that democracy is just a means to an end, but but it is to say that that's one of the reasons we're Democrats. And it's one of the reasons why you start to get worried about democracy when it's badly designed or seems to be turning in an illiberal direction. So it's sort of lib- liberal so I, I first, think that's right, second, But I think maybe. I would also make the point the other way around, which is to say that uh, an illiberal democracy uh, is... Is, is really worrying and terrifying because it might mean that members of minority groups are treated horribly. Um, and illiberal democracy can be the majority ruling, but saying that, uh, you know, 60% of us are Christians. And uh, if you happen to be Muslim, then you can't worship. And if you do, we'll throw you in jail. That that, that doesn't look at all like, a, uh, uh, like an appealing society. And so uh, the importance of a liberal element is absolutely there. But but it also means that in that kind of uh, illiberal democracy, you are unlikely to remain democratic for very long because you need checks and balances and individual rights and free press and all of those kinds of things to sustain our ability to throw the government out when we get sick of it, right? And so um, uh, my worry about uh, illiberal democracy and my worry about undemocratic liberalism or the sort of liberal despot um, are ultimately the same, which is that they're not stable. Once you you need liberalism and democracy in concert in order to have a relatively stable guarantee of uh, uh, basic rights and self-determination. And once you start losing one, the risk of losing the other is always heightened.
Yeah, I think that's incredibly well put, Yasha, and it really has really helped me think about it too, that there is this sort of, you know, catamaran feel to it, right? You need both you need both hulls for the ship to keep keep upright, basically. Uh no, did I say that right? Yeah, catamaran, two a uh, ship with two hulls, I should know. Um and let's move on to a bit about uh, why this is hard. Um uh, and a bit about your own journey here. And so again, sort of being sort of horribly simplistic, there's been a sort of move in your own intellectual your life, and it's one that I really resonate with too, um, it, which is almost like from a sort of cosmopolitan liberal uh, to more of a pluralist liberal, patriotic liberal, etc., because of a recognition that we are group groupy by nature, whether we like it or not. And so this, I'll put it in my terms, not yours, but there's a sort of John Lennon liberalism. <laughs> imagine, Im- imagine there's no countries... Uh, no, no, no. nothing to, nothing to live or die for and no religion to you know imagine there's that kind of liberalism and i you know my sense is that you've moved from more of a sort of john lennon liberalism to more of a realistic liberalism which is actually people that we, we form groups like it or not um is that a fair characterization of your journey and where has that led you to in terms of this this whole this whole groupiness literature that you talk a lot about yeah, uh, that's funny. I wonder what I would have thought at 18 about, uh, uh, you know, we are the world or about Imagine or about, uh, you know, th- that you would have set of sort of slightly. <laughs> cr- yeah, I wonder, past my oh. musical tastes were just a half a step up. But I think you're right. That, <laughs> um, in, in substantive terms, I think you're absolutely right, which is to say that my, my, uh, my hope when I was 18 or 20 was... Uh, rooted in 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 a in a sense of a tragedy of European history, which is also a tragedy of my own family. Mm. Um, you know, rooted in what it means when groups go badly wrong. Rooted in, uh, uh, you know, the wars and the genocides and and the Holocaust of of the first half of the twentieth century in in particular. Um, now, rooted in some ways in uh, what it is that motivated my grandparents who grew up. Uh, in in towns or shtetls in what's today the west of Ukraine, which was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, actually, um, uh, to become communist because they loved its universalism, they loved its promise of, uh, uh, you know, the fact that your ethnicity or religion does not matter and that you can Mm. stand together in solidarity with each other uh, beyond those kinds of boundaries. Um, and who then experienced that the regimes they helped to build did not live up to that ideal at all. Uh, it also uh, suffered in many other ways from a lack of liberalism, but it also did not actually end up living up to that ideal. But but, I, but there's something about that 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 idea which remained very formative in my childhood. That um, you know it is because of that groupishness that we had these horrible things, and that uh, any virtuous political ideal has to promise to overcome that groupishness altogether. Um, has to say, well, if groups have led to those tragedies, then we probably should try and get rid of groups and animate people to define themselves as individuals, define themselves uh, perhaps as cosmopolitans who care equally about everybody in the world. Why should I care more about somebody in my own country than in a different country? That's a powerful thought. Um, uh, But you are right that I did come to regard this as unrealistic over the course of the last decades. And that is partially because of our politics. Um, I thought, for example, we should move beyond nationalism, beyond patriotism. Uh, but it turns mm. out that this allowed the worst kinds of politicians to uh, dominate um, 
uh, the symbolism and the emotional power of nations for themselves uh, to appropriate the American flag for illiberal purposes. And this is one of the things that really helped people uh, like Donald Trump uh, win political power. Um, I also started to change my mind because of my reading in social psychology. Um, uh, and when I talk about groupishness, I talk about the ways in which it's hardwired in all of us to form these groups. Um, uh, you know, with my students who themselves probably have a kind of, well, I don't know what they have exactly, but they certainly uh, are skeptical. You know, they think that they themselves are sort of uh, incredibly tolerant and would not easily come to discriminate people. Um, and I ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich and have them debate that question against each other. And then the people who claim that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate against the people who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich in a kind of game that you can have them play. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I thought a lot about the line by Tom Lehrer uh, saying, uh, you know, it's very important that you love your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not like their fellow human beings. And I hate people like that. Right? <laughs> yes. so even the even the sort of um, the political ideal of tolerance, which is incredibly important to me, can become a group identity if you're not careful. And it can become a license to look down on everybody who somehow thinks about the world differently uh, to you. Um, and so, uh, so yes, I think any realistic liberalism and any realistic political ideology of any sort has to grapple seriously with the fact that people have this deep tendency to form groups, but often those groups aren't along the lines of, do you believe a hot dog is a sandwich, but often along the lines of ethnicity and culture and religion and race and nationality. Uh, and in order to keep these diverse democracies in which we're living together, we have to think about how to deal with that groupishness, which means recognizing it and recognizing that it can be a positive force, um, but not indulging it so much that our societies fragment and fall apart into warring tribes. Uh, and that, I think, is a political project uh, that, that we need to get right. Yes, and that's the that's the project of of your book, uh, and and I think that you we were skipping over this a little bit just because uh, I want to get to some of the more sort of political and philosophical elements. But there's a fantastic summary of that social psychology towards group uh, groupishness, and and similarly, you know, like you, I think that you know the the journey from a more individualistic liberalism to a more pluralistic one, and I would say a more realistic one is one is one that I've been on and leads you to a sort of liberal pluralism point of view. I mean, the way that, that the way I, ca I came away from your book thinking that essentially the, the literature tells us that people draw lines, right? They draw lines between groups, in and out groups. They just do, always have and always will. And that liberals need to be in the line drawing business because, and we hate that. Hmm. Right? We, we, we didn't want to be in the line drawing business. We were like, no, the whole, our pop, we want to erase lines. Lines are bad, right? And so, but the trouble with that just creates space for other people to draw lines because other people will absolutely draw those lines. And so yeah, yeah. whether we like it or not, so then the question, like, if lines are going to be drawn, the question is where, by whom, and with what implications for what follows. And so what we can't do is bench ourselves from that as liberals, right, <laughs> from that discussion. Instead, we need to enlist some of that. You do use the word enlist, enlist patriotism after this very moving story about your own. You said, as a German Jew whose ancestors perished in the Holocaust, you've come to believe we need to enlist patriotism. 
So that's you, Yasha Monk, liberal, German Jew, with lots of reasons to hate patriotism and uh, nationalism, now saying liberals need to enlist it in our, in our cause. It's a very moving book, actually, in many ways, Yasha. But talk a bit more about how you enlist something like patriotism. Like, what does that mean in practice? Maybe. I mean, go in any direction you want, but that's where... Yeah, yeah. And then, okay, so let's make this a bit more tangible, right? What does that mean mm -hmm. in practice to be a patriotic liberal in the US now as a immigrant German Jew, say? <laughs> Right, right. Well, so first of all, I really like the way you framed this around line drawing. I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but I think that's right. But, um, you know, perhaps, there is, perhaps there's a similarity here, or an, uh, an analogy, to one of my favorite American political texts, which is Federalist 10. Um, hmm. And Federalist 10 says in, in the first great experiment, uh, look, we're trying to do something here which is unprecedented, which is to build these self-governing republics. And we have, uh, it's not unprecedented, well, it's unprecedented in, in terms of the scale of America and the territorial nature of it, but there's lots of attempts at self-governing republics which have gone really badly wrong, right? You look at Athens and Rome and their amazing civilizations, but they ultimately uh, disintegrate or, or, or are taken over by dictators. Um, you look at the medieval city-states in Italy, And they usually fall apart in forms of civil war and so on because of these competing factions. And so, um, you know, when the framers of a constitution think about how to build the country, they, they need to answer what to do about this thing that's always destroyed self-governing republics. And the natural response, of course, is let's get rid of it, right? If the reason why all of these self-governing republics is they failed is that they uh, had factions. And we're trying to build a self-governing republic today that will succeed. Well, we must make sure that it doesn't have factions. There was natural thought in the world. But that is not, in fact, their solution because they realize that as long as you have liberty, mm. um, uh, you will always have factions, right? The only way to get rid of factions is to get rid of liberty, which is a cure worse than the disease. Mm. And so you have to be in the faction-drawing business, You have to figure out under what kinds of circumstances do factions destroy a self-governing republic and under what kind of circumstances uh, can we sustain them. And their answer is we need more factions, right? Mm. Because if we have two factions, then one side might hope that I'm in the majority, I can destroy you, I'll get over political power. Once you have 10 or 20 or 30 factions, none of them can hope to ever be in the majority sufficiently to really subdue Uh, the other. And that's a brilliant solution. We can have a separate debate about whether with the rise of hyper-partisanship and the electoral system we chose, which creates a two-party system, Democrats and Republicans, we haven't actually recreated exactly those two factions that, that they feared. So there's a question about how well that's working right now. But, but the basic logic is incredibly powerful. And I think I'm just realizing in, in this conversation, and that's always, uh, you know, the mark of a great conversation is that you sort of start to realize your own position better. Um, that actually my point about line drawing is analogous, right? That, that my original hope was the natural one. Groups destroy so many things in human history, right? Shouldn't we imagine a world without groups? And, and that's tempting. Like it was tempting to say, let's get rid of factions. But I think it's no less realistic to stop people having these deep uh, religious Uh, cultural, ethnic, to some extent, racial solidarities than it is to completely overcome uh, factions in a, in a free society. And so we need to figure out 
under what kinds of circumstances do these groups become dangerous and destroy democracies and under what kind of circumstances can we sustain them? And I think there's a few answers to that, right? So one answer is um, the groups that come most naturally to us are those religious and ethnic and cultural groups. In a place like the United States, it's very easy for people to say, I'm fervently religious in one way or another and this is a group that really matters to me. Uh, it's very easy to say, uh, look, I'm I'm part of an ethnic group either that has historically been dominant and I want to make sure that I preserve the privileges that, that is given my group or that has historically been dominated and that's really angry uh, for, for a very understandable reason and that wants to sort of resist the, the, the other groups or whatever, right? Those things will come naturally in America. Um, what doesn't come naturally is to preserve a level of solidarity, to so say, hey, you can have a strong affiliation with a particular religion and also feel a commonality with somebody who doesn't share that religion. You can be proud of your cultural heritage, but also have a level of uh, American culture that you share with people who have a different kind of cultural heritage. And so a lot of the reason why I think we should enlist patriotism in the cause of a diverse democracy is that the subnational groups are going to be there, and they're going to be there naturally, and of course we should make sure that they can thrive, uh, or at least if they're not oppressed, um, through the basic mechanisms of individual rights, which allow them freedom of worship, which allow them freedom of assembly, and all of those kinds of things. But we also need a level at which uh, you and I, uh, despite different religious backgrounds perhaps, or um, I and somebody who's African-American in L.A., or uh, who's Hispanic in Chicago, or uh, uh, you know, who's Muslim in, in Boston can can have a sense of kinship at the same time and say, hey, there is something that unites us even as we subnational identities divide us. And so that, I think, is the reason for the, for the line drawing and it's at least part of it. But if lines are monolithic, right, if there's one set of lines and they define everything mm. in your society, that makes it very dangerous. If there's multiple lines and you're always uh, in certain ways a member of different groups, but in other ways a member of the same group. Yes. That much increases the, the potential for us to get along. Now, I could say all kinds of things. Um, I may have a contribution there in the book about what's the content of this patriotism, right? What animates it and shouldn't be ethnic, should be civic and constitutional to some extent, should also be cultural, I think. But, but the main point, I think, is about that. But the subnational groups are going to come naturally and they'll be there and we should give them the ability to thrive. But we also need a different set of lines that unite us. And I think that, for lack of a better alternative, the nation is the place to do that in, in 2022. Yeah, there's this line, uh, it's his book, I think, Benedict Anderson describes nations as imagined communities. And so that imaginative piece of work you just did, you know, the black guy in L.A., the, you know, the uh, German Jewish immigrant in Chicago, the British uh, Christian immigrant in Northeast Tennessee, you know, <laughs> however you want to, which is where I am right now. Um, but we imagine ourselves as part of this, this shared community. And I really like where you've gone with this because I was thinking a bit about this, uh, the idea of messiness and complexity and complex selves. And you've gone with there saying the lines go in different directions. And so there's this, uh, this idea that I, so basically uh, you're just prompting me to kind of think about my own position. Like, the messier a liberal society is, the better 
Uh, mm. And by messier, what I mean is it just it's just really hard to just put people in boxes, you know, boxes. Right? So you're a you know, the, the more that people defy this kind of clustering, and so it's more I think the way that like if lots of different lines end up sitting in the same place around groups, you're in trouble. And that's what's happening in our politics now. And you've written much more, a lot about this, right? Which is like I'm really struck by the evidence, for example, that. If, if you're a Republican, you become an evangelical Christian as much as oh, the other way around. Yeah, I haven't actually seen that piece. That makes perfect, perfect intuitive yeah, sense. To, but so that seems the right. Name will, but it's like, it's like they're starting to see now the like Americans in their 20s and 30s and so on who identify as very strongly kind of Republican then select into evangelical, mm -hmm. white evangelical churches because that's what you do. And so the court lines of causality are going both ways. But also what's happening is just like I, I, obviously abortion is like in the news right now. But to pick your issue and they're getting more and more tightly clustered so the the lines don't cross each other anymore. Right. It's it's, it's not it's not messy and then you do get tribes it's like if if you line up religion ethnicity political views geography then right you're in trouble because you've you have basically created a bunch of lines that that are just dividing it's what you want is lots of cross-cutting lines you want a very very complicated matrix well i don't know that just because you're a an immigrant jewish you know, German living in Chicago, you're obviously a Democrat. And and I, I, you say this in the book, but it's fantastic news to see more Hispanics being Republican. I see a lot of gay friends moving to the right, for example, in some cases in reaction to some of the trans stuff. It's a very weird picture. And I love that. I love the fact that I don't know. I love the fact that it's crazy. I love the fact that you can be a vegan, atheist, you know, Buddhist, Republican, squash playing, I, whatever, right? Isn't that because that's, yeah. that's why we're liberals? But the trouble is that's happening less and less. We're clustering. Well, I think right. So I think in 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 some ways there's been this multi-decade process by which it happened less and less. But I think it may be starting to happen more over the course of the last few years. And so so we're at an odd point in this, and it's unclear whether that sort of um, I was just at a sort of have we regressed a little bit on this. Uh, development and now it's going to accelerate again, which would be bad news. Or are we really in the mm. middle of of a seismic shift? Um, but but the way I talk about this is that you know Democrats and Republicans and liberals and conservatives, uh, liberals this time around in the sort of American political sense, not in the philosophical sense we've been using the term so far in this conversation, uh, we don't agree on anything, right? There's nothing they can agree on at this point, basically. And the one damn thing they do agree on is this really ambitious prediction about the future which is empirically wrong and um, morally dangerous, right? And that is this idea that the fundamental way to understand American society is that it used to be majority white and is about to become majority minority. And the fundamental way to understand American politics is that because white voters tend to favor the Republican Party and non-white voters tend to favor the Democratic Party, Democrats are starting to have a sort of natural majority, right? Mm -hmm. And... This is empirically wrong because it is just very hard to make electoral predictions decades out based on demography. If you had done that in the 1960s, you would have thought, well, to know about where the Democratic Party is going to stand, you really have to look at Irish Americans because they're a key voting group for Democrats. Well, actually, Irish Americans now are a very uh, reliable voting group for Republicans. Hmm, so this that. has really changed. Hmm. Um, hmm. In 2020... 
the, the main reason why Donald Trump was competitive in re-election is that he significantly increased the share of the vote among every non-white demographic, among uh, African Americans, among Asian Americans, and particularly among Latinos. Um, uh, and the main reason why Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States is that he significantly increased his share of the vote among white voters relative to Hillary Clinton. So who knows where 10 or 20 years from now these electoral behaviors are going to fall. We certainly seem to be seeing Latinos continue to move towards the Republican Party even since 2020. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, more, more deeply, I think that the natural way in which we started to draw the lines and lead discourse in the United States between whites and people of color is, is dangerous and, and a mistake. Um, uh, it simply does not, in the ways you were just talking about, uh, uh, depict what American reality is, and in part for good reasons, because the category of whites and the category of people of color makes no real sense. There are plenty and plenty of so-called people of color who are ethnically white, Latinos, um, mm. who come from societies in which their standing within that society is completely defined by being white, is completely defined by being descendants of European immigrants, um, which gives them a certain kind of standing and often some unjust advantages within those societies. So they don't just, it's not just sort of that, uh, insofar as you can talk about biology in this, which I'm always somewhat skeptical of, but it's not just that sort of, just in terms of inheritance, they're in fact white, but all of the answers come from Europe. Um, it's that within their, the societies of their own parents or that they may themselves may have been born in, they are politically white and that they are a member of mm. a majority governing group defined by its descent from Europe, right? And so I hate to do the, you know, the worst resort of a public intellectual, but, um, you know, a few days ago I got into a cab at the airport, uh, or an <laughs> Uber at the airport, and uh, I saw... Uh, at first, I thought, oh, beautiful, there's a, there's a cap with, uh, you know, of a Brazilian football team or something like that. And I, I love soccer and I love Brazilian soccer team. But no, it said Bolsonaro 2022. And the cab driver was an immigrant from Brazil um, who is a Bolsonaro super fan. And I thought to myself, I bet he's also a fan of Trump's. And I, I had a conversation with him asking about his views. And of course, he loves Trump and hates Biden. This is a person of color. Right? On the other hand, by the way, the only group among white Americans, so-called white Americans, people who are counted as white according to the United States Census Bureau and so on, um, the only ethnic group that, that very reliably counts as white in the United States is not Europeans, because many Europeans are in fact Hispanic and count as people of color. It is Arabs, whose skin color is in fact not in a straightforward way white, because yes. but they, they, but they don't have a category a of whites, and very few yeah. of them are Hispanic. I mean, a few of yes. them are, but... In the huge majority, they don't have any connection to a Spanish or Italian uh, or, or Portuguese-speaking country. So, so lots of whites are the people of color, and the only ethnic group in the United States that's reliably counted as white is, in fact, at least on some intuitive conception, not white at all. So this whole way we have of talking about this topic is what Karen and Barbara Fields um, would rightly describe as racecraft. It is a way of uh, naturalizing the one-drop rule, which has an obvious historical importance in the United States and obvious resonance within the African-American community because of the way they were defined and dis discriminated against on the basis of that rule, but it generalizes it in, in ways that don't represent 
sociological reality in this country um, and don't in fact make sense. And so, uh, you know, if everything goes wrong in American society, right, and we run the worst possible future we could have, and that is a risk, right? One of the things I talk about in the book is the worst societies have often gone wrong. They've often gone wrong after periods of progress as well. This is possible. If everything goes wrong, then 20 years from now or 50 years from now, we can say America is defined by the class between whites and people of color. To say that today makes no sense. To say today that this cab driver of mine who is white within his own society, who identifies with Bolsonaro and with Trump, is somehow naturally part of the same quasi-metaphysical category as somebody all of whose ancestors were enslaved and brought to this country in chains, uh, and so they're both people of color. It just makes no sense of mm. where we're at in a society. And, and since the line drawing is influenced by institutions, by incentives, and by discourse, we should be very careful about making sure that the simplistic way we have of talking about the world doesn't start to influence the world and, in fact, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, you you write a lot about this, and I agree with all of it, actually. Um, and I think just the history of the invention of these categories and that, that phrase that you've borrowed of racecraft is, is absolutely right. And actually, my colleague Camille Bousset and I have written about a majority plural society. Uh, rather, you know, because I think that's a much better way to think about it, which is that you just, and, and, and it's plural in the sense there is actually just going to, there isn't going to be a single major, majority group, but also just because there's much more mixing um, more generally. What's interesting about this is that this is an area where right now, and you identify this, is where the right and the left are in loud agreement. Uh, which is like, here's the line, right? They're very identitarian around race. Um, and the left are really doing that as well. And that's where, and one of the points where we'll get to this is you're, one of the reasons you set up persuasion is on is that we should be criticizing our own side. And you, you're very critical of the left for overweighting these racial lines and that binary in particular, right? It's, not, it's one thing to identify racially. Um, it's another thing to make that the main thing, right? To put masks. So the thing we're still missing with our analogy of the lines is like how, how strongly drawn is it, right? So I'll be a bit anecdotal for a minute. So I'm half Welsh. My mother's Welsh, Welsh-speaking. My father's English. They live in Wales. Uh, on rugby days, we're very Welsh. I can sing the mm. Welsh national anthem. My son is in college in Wales. Um, but when well, the Falklands War happened, the Welsh guards were the ones who were killed when the ship went down fighting for the UK. And when it's the Olympics, it's GB and so on. So you can be Welsh and British and no one really cares, right? I mean, it's not like, I mean, you, no, I shouldn't say you don't care. I mean, I'm very proud of that, actually. I'm proud of my Welsh kind of heritage, but I don't like, it wouldn't be something that I would like, it cross cuts on my other identities. And I'd like to think that that's how we could get to a bit with some aspects of race in the US, with this exception of the historic un terrible treatment of African-Americans, which is it's part of our identity, but it's not the identity. It's not a capital I, whereas the left are kind of putting people into affinity groups and particularly in certain schools. A friend of mine who teaches at a private school in DC was put into an affinity group. And she, you know, she, was, she said, which one do I go in? I'm Jewish. And they said, oh, you're going the white one. And she was like, well, really? I mean, only recently. Uh, and who, who got to decide, by the way, that, that I'm white, right? Uh, so the left are almost as guilty of this. I'm not saying the consequences are as bad, nor do you say that, but they're almost as guilty of leaning into these very strong racial divides as the right, correct? And, you, and you're very worried about that and very critical of that. Yeah, and, and I think a, a very important distinction is um, that we want people to be self-determining, right? Mm -hmm. now, I'm not talking about sort of uh, 
complete fantasies about who you are or where you're from. But, you know, in a free society, you have free association. And so for adults to say, I'm going to join this cultural association or I'm going to join this ethnic association is something that they need to be free to do. Um, and, you know, high school students, it's kind of a special case because they're underage, but they also have some amount of real moral autonomy. Um, I tend to lean on the moral autonomy. So, you know, if there's a cultural club in high school or even if there's an ethnically defined uh, club in high school and people are uh, voluntarily self-selecting into participation in that club, that is the kind of groupishness that you might have mixed feelings about, but that is, you know, should absolutely be legal and, 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 and acceptable in the United States, which can have some very positive things. Um, certainly, I think the fact that we have, uh, uh, you know, certain neighborhoods in the United States that are defined in cultural terms, Chinatowns and so on, is something that I love about this country. It doesn't concern me at all. Um, now, it's very different to have a teacher come into a classroom, as is happening in many of these same private schools, when the kids are 10 or 8 or 6, and say, you are African-American, you go over there. You're Asian-American, you go over there. You're Latino, you go over there. You're white, you go over there. And the concerns I have about it is twofold. First of all, that I don't think our society should be sending the message from on high that your skin color is the most important thing about you in that kind of way. I don't think that what uh, uh, these kids should be learning from the teachers that the most important thing about them is their skin color. I get where it comes from as a whole, sure. that go, they're going to engage in some forms of political resistance and so on. I just think that that is as likely to go wrong as it is to, to, to go right. And it's not, in fact, likely to create the kind of society where we have a mutual solidarity to overcome uh, injustices. Now, the second problem is particularly what you do with the white kids. Now, one solution to this is a solution that I've experienced when I was a kid in Germany, which is that um, you know, nearly everybody in, in, in school was Christian, and you in Germany actually have religious instruction. So uh, the kids were divided into Protestant Catholic religion classes. Uh, and so it was me and the two kids of Turkish immigrants sort of sitting around, you know, reading teen magazines and, you know, learning about the facts of life, which is pleasant enough. But, you know, Different that's not kind a great of education. And you, can't, <laughs> and you can't do that. You know, you can't say, oh, you know, like, oh, like no, all the, all the non-white kids have to go and listen to a lecture and all the white kids get to, like, go and, you know, play dodgeball in the yard or something, right? Like, that, that doesn't seem fair. So what do you do? Well, you get all the white kids in a room and you tell them about white privilege and you tell them about the oppression that whites have historically perpetrated and so on. You know, some people are worried that that makes me feel uncomfortable and uh, whatever, I, I think it's fine for students to sometimes feel uncomfortable. I'm not very worried about that. What I am worried about is the very basic mechanisms of human psychology. But if you get a bunch of white kids together and you say, the most important thing about you is that you're white, and that's how we should identify, and you're hoping that that'll turn them into Robin DiAngelo-style anti-racists, it's much more likely that what you're going to do is to turn them into racists. It's much more likely that you're going to tell them, well, if the most salient important thing about me is my whiteness, well, I guess I better defend the interests of my group. That is historically what a majority of people within a group have always done. And so, um, you know, what works better? Uh, well, the classic, I mean, it's boring, but, but, but all of the research and psychology suggests putting them in a situation where we're fighting for a common goal, um, where we're treated as equals within that situation. We might not be equals outside in all kinds of socioeconomic ways, but we're equal within that situation and encouraging them to get along. Put them in a sports team, Right. right? Yep. Have, them, have them fight with a championship together. 
and that'll create the bonds and the mutual trust and so on. And then they'll share, right? Then they'll talk to their classmates and they'll say, hey, I feel uncomfortable with this in, at school or I have this tough challenge I'm dealing with at home. That is the context in which you start to have that kind of mutual understanding and mutual solidarity, not by separating them into different groups and lecturing them. Yes, uh, and you talk a lot about empathy, and you actually dedicate your book to civic friendship, which I really uh, personal and civic, which I think was of a piece with this. And uh, and I, I won't read the whole quote, but I will say uh, I think your demolition of communitarian critique of liberalism is one of the very finest I've ever read. Uh, and the essential argument you make is that it is just not true that liberals don't respect these differences and these allegiances and these commitments. That's just an absolute false flag, straw man operation, always has been, always will be. It's just that we think people should be able to choose their commitments and they should not be forced on. Anyway, so, but what that leads you to well, is well, something me, like this. I think, so, I, think, this. I think actually I have a little bit more, criti- I have a little bit more sympathy for the critics of liberalism in that respect. So, I, mean, I completely defend liberalism as the right solution, but I think it's true that, uh, you know, there's two liberal traditions and one is comprehensive and one is political, right? So one really is to say, uh, you know, this is how you should live and you should be an individualist, right? You should uh, look down on groups. Um, you should be skeptical of anybody who's religious because that, how, that's not a good way to live, you know? You should, and I think that's actually a powerful cultural tradition. And I say that a little bit because I grew up as part of a tradition to a certain respect, right? As somebody who's Jewish, but certainly not religious. My grandparents were no longer religious. My parents certainly weren't. Uh, growing up in a very secular society in Europe, uh, within lefty artisty circles because my mom is a musician I think I, I was guilty of that to some extent I think I did think that liberalism was in part uh, I'm not sure I would have called myself a liberal but I did think that that you know that, that there's something wrong with groupishness of that sort including strongly held religious beliefs right and so I've gone on a personal journey of coming to have much much more respect for the importance that people's groups and people's religions uh, play in their lives um, and it's made me realize that the right form of liberalism is a political liberalism, right? And the political, so I'm personally, I'm a little bit of both, right? I mean, I lead a pretty liberal uh, life in the in the comprehensive sense, right? I, I'm not, in fact, a member of all that many groups. I'm not religious. I'm pretty cosmopolitan. I've lived in lots of different countries, right? Like all of those stereotypes are true about me, but I also recognize that that's not how most people live, right? And so I get the communitarian critique of liberalism, which is, you all just don't take seriously um, the importance that these kinds of associations have for people. And you think that it's a question of choice. You think that it's a question of people reinventing themselves. And that's because you might be the sorts of people who like, go around the world reinventing yourselves every five years. But most people aren't like that. Most people remain members of the religion of their parents. Most people remain members of a cultural association or so the ethnic uh, networks that they grow up in. Mm. And And so this is why this whole liberal framework built around choice is 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 wrong-headed or erroneous so i actually have some sympathy for that starting point as as a critique now here's why it goes wrong anyway and there's two important reasons the first is um yes most people will remain members of their groups without reflecting on it all of that much and that's perfectly fine mm. but there will also be some people who want to leave that group there will also be some people who say i was raised in this uh, uh, very deep religion and I want out I don't believe it I don't want to live uh, like my parents do I want to date somebody who my parents don't approve of 
perhaps I'm, I'm gay and my parents don't approve of that. Um, perhaps I just want to go and have very other priorities. And and part of a task of any decent society is not just to protect minority religious and cultural groups against the state of the majority. It's also to protect the members of those groups against what Darna Simoglu and James Robinson call the cage of norms, against the imposition of the norms of that group on on those individuals who do want to choose to, 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 to leave that group. So that's the first problem. And the second problem is that in the right understanding of liberalism, it is an unfair critique because I think political liberals do recognize the importance of those groups. And we don't have this fantasy that everybody self-invents ab nihilo from scratch at the age Absolutely. Of Some sandblasted uh, landscape. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're right, right. it's a straw. And that's precisely yeah. why the core liberal freedoms are freedom of association, freedom of religion, right? The core liberal freedoms are to say, hey, we recognize that for most people, these groups are really going to matter. Now, why do we respect those groups? They're not the building block of our society. We're not an association of associations. We're not just, a, 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 you know, a, some kind of peace treaty between different groups. We base our society on the rights and the, and, and the duties of individuals, and we deeply respect the groups because so many of our citizens give deep importance to them. Because to so many of our citizens... Um, being a member of our religious or cultural groups and associations is of the greatest importance. And that's why those groups are deserving of dignity and honor. But part of the dignity and honor uh, derives from, and all of it is premised on, the fact that they may not have chosen in some abstract way to, to become a member of them, but they have an ongoing free choice to leave if they so choose. And that is why these groups are worthy of our respect. And if that wasn't the case, then they wouldn't be worthy of our respect, because then they would just be oppressing their members. It's interesting you've used this word respect for these traditions and institutions rather than just tolerance. And I actually think that's an important move. I think that previously you might say, well, we have to tolerate these things. You know, what can we say? People are, people aren't, other people aren't quite as smart or sophisticated as I am. Um, just have to live with it, right? Uh, but in fact, you use the word respect a lot. And I think that's right because you have to say that in a free society, people are still choosing to stay with these commitments as long as they have what economists call exit power. We have to respect those associations so long as people have exit power, so long as individuals are freely choosing to remain committed to them. Otherwise, what kind of liberals are we? Actually, we become, as you said, autonomous. What we're basically saying is you need to be my kind of liberal. What we're basically saying is, you know, until and unless everyone's like Yasha, liberalism <laughs> <laughs> right because <laughs> you've just self-described yourself that way right. um, but actually what you're saying now is look i actually i i actually don't want to live in a society where everyone's like yasha i quite like the fact that there are amish for example and they're growing like crazy for example right i quite like the fact that there are people who have strong religious convictions that i don't share them i quite like the fact that there are people who have kind of strong d- different views about i like that Right, I should, you shouldn't want to win a culture war, even if you're, the, even if it's on the liberal side of it, right? You, it's, and I think that's isn't that why you end up respecting it because it's both individually chosen, but also you want that diversity, you want those different ways of living in one society. Um, boring. Otherwise. Yeah, look, I think uh, yes and no in the sense, but that's the best. Ideally, that's the case, right? Ideally, all of the groups in society are worthy of being respected um, and ideally all of the citizens in society are uh, comfortable enough with a kind of diversity in their country 
that they see it as a, a as a strength rather than a weakness. I, I don't think that's the condition for a society, right? I think in many places that just won't be the case. Um, in many places, there'll be lots of citizens who think, you know, I don't like the way that the country is changing culturally, or you know, most groups I'm fine with, but you know, hmm. he's Amish with whatever for whatever reason I dislike, right? And you know what? That's okay. Um, yes. Uh, what we need is a set of rules which assures everybody that if a neighbor doesn't like them, that's not a scary thing um, because they're protected um, and and they have the rights they need in order to uh, live a self-determined life uh, in 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 that kind of way. So um, definitely, we should encourage that kind of mutual respect. Um, and it'll be much easier to sustain a diverse democracy if more rather than fewer people have it. Um, but I think it obviously would be unrealistic to expect uh, everybody to have it all of the time. You're right. You're right. The distinction between tolerate and res- and respect is still important. And as I think about it, that will be true for me too. And I've used this example on my podcast before. So some people heard this before, but I used the example of Mill and the Mormons. Uh, where actually uh, everyone at the US at the time was was furious that all these Mormons were having polygamous marriages because uh, that wasn't Christian and they were going to go and enforce monogamous marriage on them. And Mill wrote about this and he said, look, I do not like the way the Mormons are doing this at all, mostly for feminist reasons, um, because it was polygyny uh, rather than... Poly- we only want I think I'm getting that right, polygyny. Um, he said, I don't like it. I think it's sexist and medieval but as long as people can get out your point earlier as long as they have exit power leave them alone Mill's view was I don't like polygamy I think it's bad I think it's unequal I don't he wouldn't respect that tradition but he said to the US government leave them alone on liberal grounds because it's like well that's what they're like and as long as they can leave and so on too and I guess you'd you'd land in the same place right you'd you'd be with Mill as far as the Mormons were concerned or whatever the equivalent is you know or gay marriage or to choose an example from the other side right you may not you you may not like it but you should you should live with it uh yeah so I think certainly on on you know, uh, I'm not trying to get on the. Right, I mean, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to get no, no, of course, yeah, the record in favour of polygamy. <laughs> I just mean as no, no, no. I mean, because that's quite different from itself, of course. But um, <laughs> yeah, yes. no, no, but I, no, I think, I think, I think that is right. I mean, you know, there is a difficult question of, uh, you know, when does a practice become so coercive in reality? that it may be justifiable to ban it um, because that is the most effective way of protecting the large share of members of that practice who are not, in fact, uh, making autonomous choices, right? And so I could imagine... So I think it depends a little bit on the empirical facts, right? If it's true that um, girls who are married off at 15... Uh, second or third wives and that essentially they didn't have exit power in many cases Yes, and that uh, it's very hard to prove that in individual cases and so the best way of protecting people against that extreme form of coercion is to outlaw the practice in general um, then uh, then that may be right in that circumstance but of course the burden of proof here of proof here has to be very high because uh, a, a quite parallel argument is being made uh, by by secularists, uh, many of whom are very decent and, and, and morally engaged people, 
uh, in France about uh, the headscarf in schools, right? Where they're saying, yes. look, in so many cases, yes. girls yeah. are forced to wear the headscarf by, by their parents. Um, and it's not, in fact, individual choice. And then there's huge social pressure to wear it within Muslim communities. And so the only way to ensure that these girls uh, aren't forced to wear it is to actually ban it. Now, I actually think that logic is very similar to the logic of the uh, of the um, polygamy case. Um, uh, but in that case, I think empirically, uh, you're you're throwing the baby out of the bathwater. You're going too far because there's also many girls who do want to choose to wear the headscarf, um, and there's probably other ways of trying to fight against a very real problem of pressure being asserted at them. And so I think there's actually a complicated trade-off, but in the end, I'm quite clearly on the other side of the debate. So I think empirical facts do matter in those kinds of hard cases. Yes, and it's interesting that while France was doing that, the UK was doing the opposite. And in some ways, people were saying that was a more Republican answer. Uh, and I agree it's an empirical question. Utah actually just decriminalized polygamy. Um, mm. And I think to come back to the Osamoglu example of the cage of norms, I think, again, maybe overdoing the metaphor, it's a little bit like how strong is the cage, right? We're going to have norms, but you want a cage where the bars are wide enough apart where you can actually get out. So it's not really a cage exactly. It's not, at that point, what you have is a, you have a structure of norms, but you're not, it's not literally a cage, right? Um, and so... Yeah, and that's, that's an empirical question, right? It's an empirical question then, isn't it? It's just like, and, and it's an unanswerable question in some ways, but clearly you're always going to have norms. You're always going to have traditions and so on too, but you don't want to be incarcerating in this cage sense um and so that's the gap is like how it's really it's like how realistically possible is it to exit from them should you choose to and if it's reasonably realistic as i would say it is in 21st century utah it's fine for polygamy to be legal maybe it wasn't in the 19th century maybe mill was wrong about that but 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 you're right the default should be like you need mm. strong evidence that people don't have real substantive exit power to start banning it at state level right right exactly so I think if it's true that we really don't have exit power and that the only way to give them exit power is to ban a practice, then that may in fact be the liberal thing to do. But but uh, uh, that requires, uh, in legal parlance, strict scrutiny, right? It requires being pretty sure that there's no other way Very of doing sure. it and pretty sure that, that the case of norms, in fact, does have strong bars um, before you go around banning things. Yeah, so... Uh, I'll, I'll just conclude by saying that you, you raised the chapter 10 problem, which is all these books have huge problem, you know, massive problem, and then a sort of desultory list of solutions at the end. Uh, you name that problem. I'm not sure you quite solve it, um, but that's perhaps for another day. But I will say that I, I think like, in the end, you do lean hard on things like civic friendship, liberal virtue, how we actually act you end on the note of how we actually are in these liberal societies what does it mean to be a citizen like it's something that we do rather than just something we think about and i don't think that's a bug i think that's a feature and so i think that to the extent sometimes we we're a little bit apologetic about the fact that we don't have some sweeping public policy that's going to solve this and instead we we, we resort to this sense of we're like well just go and be liberal just go and be different and it feels weak when you've just said the future of democracy is at stake but it also feels true I mean, it just feels like that's 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 true. It actually, in the end, will come down to that kind of... I and mean, we didn't actually get to talk much about persuasion, but in something like persuasion, or the, you're actually doing liberalism rather than just being a liberal. And it's something you have to do now rather than just believe. I, that's, that's, that's beautifully put. I mean, let, let me say something about the Chapter 10 problem, which is um, 
which is summarized well. So yeah, it's just, you know, all of these books about these big topics have these nine chapters where they outline the problems. Like, that's a very convincing description of a problem. Mm. And then they have a tension of like, well, this is what we're going to do to solve it. And that's just never very convincing because either it's like, it requires a revolution. It's like, well, perhaps, but we're not going to make not a revolution. Not waiting for that. And even if we do, it'll have other bad effects. Or it's like, oh, here's my free little itsy-bitsy suggestions. Like, yeah, perhaps we'll get two of them passed, even in our dysfunctional Congress. But even if we got three of them passed, it wouldn't actually solve it, right? So, so I don't think I completely solve the chapter 10 problem in this book. I think it's unsolvable. Right. Um, what I do think is that um, the reason to be optimistic about the state of our ethnically and religiously diverse democracies is uh, not any set of fixes that I might come up with. And I have lots of policy suggestions in chapter 10, but, hmm, but it's not that those policy suggestions are going to fix anything. It's that... Uh, actually the trend has been very positive and that there are strengths in our society and that our society does operate despite its huge polarization and the very deep worries I have about what's going on at the political level and the 2024 election and all of that um, the heart of our society does operate in a liberal way and in a more liberal way than it did in the past um, imperfectly liberal but but less imperfectly liberal than in the past and, and one way of thinking about this is just that most people start with a Assumption that it's easy to build these ethnically and religiously diverse democracies. And then they look at the current reality and say, there's all of these injustices, there's all this racism, there's all this discrimination. There must be something uniquely terrible about us, and how can we possibly have any hope for the future? And that's a sort of catastrophist frame, which is very familiar in our discourse at the moment. Um, my uh, way of thinking about this is nearly exactly inverse, which is to say that it's really hard to build ethnically and religiously diverse societies or democracies. Most of the time that we've tried it, it's gone really badly wrong. When you take seriously what a challenge and what a difficulty uh, this is. But that also allows us to recognize that by, by the standards of history, by the standards of our own past, certainly in the United States uh, or Germany or so many other countries, um, we're doing pretty well. But we have made real improvements and becoming more tolerant towards each other and having a, a, a mainstream society that is much more inclusive and diverse in sustaining uh, some amount of patriotism that is ethnically inclusive and that actually sustains a common culture even despite the vast variety of the United States. Um, and all of that should make us a little bit more optimistic that if we remain ambitious for the vision of the kind of society that we want to build, uh, we might succeed in doing so. A great note on which to end, Yasha. I think that um, you do set, set out the case that it's it's hard, but we're doing well, rather than it's easy and we're screwing up. And I also think that you've ended here and you end the book on a, a note of optimism. And I think that whilst you don't say it quite this way, you also demonstrate that optimism is in and of itself a liberal virtue. It's, it's incredibly important to have this kind of things can get better, things are getting better, the future can be better, and that actually pessimism is perhaps one of our deepest enemies. Uh, and you see it on both left and right now. And so it's not, uh, it's far from being it kind of, you say it's a bit naive to be optimistic in some ways, right? And that's always been the inter public. I think an, opt an optimistic intellectual is a brave person. 
because it's <laughs> much more fashion it's much cooler and cleverer and more fashionable to be pessimistic and say what's wrong with everything uh you know we all know that there's much more kudos there but as a liberal it seems to me that optimism is abs- absolutely needs to be in our dna and it's clearly in yours and in the work you're doing at persuasion and you're doing this book the great experiment and you've sh- you've shown here so as i've said i'd love this to be a 48 hour conversation perhaps at some point we'll get to do another 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 version of it but i come and visit you in tennessee and then we'll have uh yes uh, you know a 48 hour conversation hopefully with some breaks to sleep in between maybe but uh i i'll let you sleep every now and again but uh huge fan (laughs) of the work huge fan of yours uh, as you know asher and the book and uh, congrats on the book and on your all your work and i hope we speak again soon thanks for this great conversation Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.